With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show, people don't want that smart cut. They want that shortcut, but there is no such thing. Everyone wants shortcuts, but there's still the dumb way. And I think if everyone's doing it, it's probably the dumb way. There's a smarter way to do it that might get you there faster, but it's not the easy way. In my personal career, if I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to write about innovation and science. The first thing I did was email the features editor for the print edition of Wired Magazine with this great story idea I had. And he wrote back, look, kid, you've never been published anywhere, but you know, come back to me when you have some notches on your belt. That didn't feel fair. So I built this sideways ladder path where I said, what's this guy going to see as credibility, the minimum credibility to give me a shot? Probably writing for a similar level magazine or slightly lower magazine in the same topic. So I just started small. I did it for free. And here, three and a half months later, after I initially emailed that editor at Wired, I had another good story. And I emailed him and I said, hey, you may remember me. I've now written for Fast Company Magazine and for Mashable and Gizmodo and all these places. And they printed my story. And that cut off four years. It's interesting because it seems to me no matter what you want to do, there's always a backdoor way. Beachbody On Demand is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to highly effective world-class workouts from programs like Pyo, P90X, 21 Day Fix, and more. Stream over 600 different workouts as well as extensive nutritional content, including a first-of-its-kind cooking show called Fixate, which features over 100 recipe videos proven to help people achieve their health and fitness goals. All of this, along with step-by-step program guides, workout calendars, and the support of a growing community, which is really important, makes Beachbody On Demand the total package. This is a brand new service, but already remarkably has over 1 million members. And now you can claim a free trial membership when you text James to 303030. Get full access to this entire platform for free. Just text James to 303030. 
So I've got Shane Snow back on the podcast. Shane, how's it going? Yeah, it's going great. Feels Shane, good. You know, last time you were on was three years ago. Mm-hmm. Then we did it on Skype. It was all, I had a train going in the background. People could hardly hear it. You had just come up with the the best-selling book. And I thought just the real, as soon as I read the book, I'm like, I have to get this guy on the podcast, Smart Cuts. And now you're working on a brand new book, working title, The Power of Difference, that I want to talk about. But summarize Smart Cuts just for a second, just in case somebody hasn't heard that old podcast. Sure. Well, first, I'm very flattered. Uh, Smart Cuts is about this uh, concept called lateral thinking, which is sort of a psychologist term for uh, the way that hackers solve problems. So, okay, so I've been a computer programmer in a past life. I'm just trying to think how I would use the phrase lateral thinking. So there's a conventional way of doing something that we've all been taught, sort of a logical, sort of... uh, Here's a problem. Here's how everyone does it. A best practice. Lateral thinking is about approaching that problem from a different angle. And this is how essentially breakthroughs in history have happened. Like you look at the history of business and art and science. And anytime there's a huge leap in what we can do or what we figured out, it's because someone has approached the problem differently. The classic example, it's not in the book, but the guy who jumped over the high jump bar backwards. Everyone was diving over the high jump bar. Some dude at the Olympics jumped over it backwards. And it turns out that you can jump higher like everyone was worried about his neck uh, getting injured, but that changed the game. And then the next Olympics, everyone's jumping over the high jump bar backwards. That sort of thing happens kind of everywhere you look when you look at innovation. Yeah, like if you look at the Industrial Revolution, for instance, the the cotton gin was originally, if I'm, I think he was trying to work on like a sewing loom or something, and he figured out it could work with cotton. Uh, every essentially every invention happened this way. It was sort of like a different way of thinking about an old problem. Yeah, it's it's playing by different rules than everyone's playing by. And, and you can see it. It's easy to describe in sports, but what I explored in the book is how this applies to people who uh, build really interesting and unconventional careers. One of the things that's actually really fascinating in sort of the context of today is uh, I looked at the career paths of U.S. presidents and how most U.S. presidents spend very little time in politics compared to people who lose elections and who don't become president, and we just elected a guy who's never been in politics. Well, and like, so he's never been in politics. Obama was in politics for like three years right. beforehand. And you even take a look at like, uh, I don't Teddy know, Roosevelt. Ronald Reagan was an actor. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things that, uh, that was interesting about that that is kind of becomes a key sort of insight that the book builds on is uh, it's not that there's like this sort of magical shortcut to like, oh, you can sort of cut your way. I mean, you can do that. Um, but it's hard to be successful if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, so there's this, when you look at how historians rank the best presidents in terms of you know how they performed as president, the pattern is like most of the top 10 have fewer than 10 years of experience in politics. JFK is the only one who had more than 10 years in politics. The and he top, was, when he was elected, it was interesting, he's the, he was the youngest president ever elected. He'd been doing it his whole life, yeah. But he was also like a Pulitzer winner and like he had been in like the military. He'd done a bunch of things before he did politics or in addition to politics. You look at the worst presidents, they're the guys that were in politics for 30 years. And by the time, and the thing that made them the worst, there's also a few really bad presidents that didn't, hadn't been in politics and they were, just didn't know what they're doing. The pattern is that really good presidents, really good leaders are flexible. They're willing to realize that they're wrong. They, and a lot of these guys that weren't in politics their whole careers, their whole lives, they weren't tied down to a particular way of thinking. It's like Andrew Johnson was this president, was like the third worst in history. When he became president, everyone in his cabinet hated him because he'd always say, like, no, I've been doing this for so long, we're doing it my way. 
Uh, whereas presidents like Lincoln and FDR and even George Washington, these guys that were like war heroes or, you know, sort of hustled in other areas, they were much more willing to listen to someone else's advice. You know, um, it's interesting because take a look at like kids, 18-year-olds. They're so obsessed with doing, you know, it's it's almost in their genes at that point or their hormones at that point that uh, they have to do what their friends are doing. So take college. They all apply to college and 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 they only can then choose whatever colleges chose them. And I try to explain to kids, uh, so I'm in general against kids going to college, but if you want to go to college, let's say you want to go to Harvard or Columbia or whatever, there's always a backdoor way. There's that you don't have to just get accepted and then that's you, that limits your choice, whoever accepts you or who doesn't. Like you could take evening courses there for a year and then just by then you'll know all the professors and then you just transfer to go during the day. Like there's always a, it seems to me no matter what you want to do, there's always a backdoor. Like take publishing as an example. E.L. James probably would never have been able to get Fifty Shades of Grey published. It's like a horribly oh, written never. book. Yeah. But she self-published, sold quarter of a million copies, and then whatever it was, Random House or Simon & Schuster picked up her book, and it's it's sold 150 million copies now. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I talk about, applying this idea of lateral thinking sideways moves. So there's the expected path. Everyone's in line. you got to wait for people in front of you in line to die so you can get your chance. And you see people like like you're talking about in history do that. In my personal career... So I wanted to be a writer, like I loved writing, and I wanted to write about innovation and science and all these things. And so my goal when I moved to New York was I want to write for Wired magazine, my favorite magazine. I love it. I want to write for it. So the first thing I did, I was, you know, 23, and uh, I had a great story idea, and I emailed the features editor for the print edition of Wired magazine with this great story idea I had. And he wrote back, and he's like, look, kid, you've never been published anywhere. Like, spend a few years. Like, I love this story. I'm sure someone will take it, and I appreciate the verve. But, uh, you know, come back to me when, uh, when you have some notches on your belt or whatever. And, uh, and so what I did is, uh, like, that didn't feel fair. Like, you know, you realize that the path to getting to become a feature writer for Wired is you get an internship there, you beat out the 100 other people that have wanted the internship. Then you, you know, you slog away for years as a fact checker, and then you write little things, and they make you go get coffee. And then slowly over the years, you build your way up, and then finally the columnist dies, and so then you get upgraded uh, but then you look at some of the uh, the people who are writing features for these great magazines that have kind of non-traditional career paths, especially the really young ones, this is who I looked at because I was young. And a lot of them you see, you know, wrote for like some sort of nature journal and then wrote for this other science blog and then wrote for this slightly better blog and then freelance for this other place. So I kind of built this sort of uh, sideways ladder path to Wired where I said, What's this guy going to see as credibility, the minimum credibility, to give me a shot? Probably writing for a similar level magazine or slightly lower magazine in the same topic. Well, what would that magazine do to give me a shot? And what would that blog do to give me a shot? So I just started small, pitched this really crappy tech blog, the amazing story that I had for Wired. They said, yes, I did it for free. I wrote a couple for them. And then I emailed the next one, Gizmodo or something. And I was like, hey, I've been writing for this crap tech blog I have this story, free story, I don't care. Wrote a couple stories for them, and then I went to Mashable, and then I went to Fast Company, and then I went to the print edition of Fast Company. And here, three and a half months later, after I initially emailed that editor at Wired, I had another good story, and I emailed him, and I said, hey, you may remember me. I've now written for Fast Company Magazine, and for Mashable, and Gizmodo, and all these places. And he's like, you know what? Cool. And they printed my story, and, and that cut off like four years. And I'm not the best writer at Wired, 
But that's the mentality of what's holding you back from doing the work that you want to do. So why do you think most people don't do that? Like, for instance, in the in the example I gave with the college, like there's always a back door or, or self-publishing. So many people refuse. It's almost like this psychological thing. They don't want to do the different thing. I think there's... When you, when you hear stories like the one that I just told, it's easy to say, oh, there's this sort of overnight success factor of like, oh, if you do this this way, then you'll be overnight successful. But we know a lot of, you know, one-hit wonders that are overnight successes that they actually aren't that good. They're good at getting the gig. So maybe, you know, who knows about our current president? Maybe he's good at getting the gig, but not actually good at pulling through because he doesn't have whatever it takes. You see that a lot. I think the key thing is that there's still hard work in going either path. There's hard work in paying your dues and sort of digging the ditch for years. There's hard work in going that lateral route. But the work is behind the scenes mental work. It's sitting by the ditch for eight hours thinking about it and then spending two hours digging rather than spending 16 hours digging the ditch. Wait, I'm not sure I understand. Okay. Uh, There's a lot of... It's a lot of ditch metaphors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's much more of a mental exertion, a mental effort to not follow the expected path. And so it is hard work and there's a lot of kind of building up. Is that because you have to do, you have to have other skills other than the writing. You have to kind of think, oh, these are the best places to network and position myself. You kind of have to have like this extra crafty skill as opposed to just the writing skill. There's sort of like a street smart, street hustle kind of thing. There's like a sales component. If you're trying to blaze a new trail, Oftentimes, you have to convince people that that's okay or to let you do that. And, and that takes more behind-the-scenes effort that we, in sort of our Protestant work ethic, we don't really value or appreciate or celebrate when you see someone that's trying to do that. We say, well, why don't you go and you earn your dues and you get the job? So I think that holds a lot of us back. I think for me, the way that I grew up, there's this very, I grew up in a small farm town where people worked really hard. There's this very linear expected path. Like you go to the local college, you graduate, you move down the street from your parents, and you work super hard and do this thing. And that bothered me, and so I moved out. But there's that kind of mentality that we have where we celebrate that, but we celebrate less the person who's spending hours and years thinking about doing something a new way. That makes sense. Although afterwards... We celebrate the new They're way. The genius. We celebrate yeah. Picasso and Einstein and everybody who did the new way. We don't see that Einstein, rather than do the traditional route of academia, became a patent clerk so he would have more time to yeah. work on his great theories. Yeah. He's sitting in that patent office and drawing from, and this actually ties into kind of what I'm writing about now. He drew from all of these, he's a very diverse thinker, drew from all of these different industries and these different things. He's looking at these patents from every you know field imaginable. And he's, you know, busy arguing with these other scientists. And he had this great education, but no one respected him until he made the breakthrough that he made. Um, And so, you know, even someone, so like in in my journey, again, like I think there's a, I'm 50 years away from being the, the writer that I have the potential to be, but I'm a good writer. And the thing that was holding me back was not experience in writing. I've been writing for, you know, more than a decade. It was the sort of the stripes of credibility that our current system had like gave credit for. And what they didn't give credit for, the system doesn't generally give credit for is you being a freelancer, you not getting that uh, certification, uh, so, you building so your how, own path. How do people kind of get out of that comfort zone of um, celebrating that one path? I mean, it seems like that's a hard thing to do. Most people can't, don't do it. Like I'd like to do it in various ways. In some ways I can do it. Some ways I feel like I can't. Uh, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot more 
today, even, even the term lateral thinking, which is still kind of a nerdy term, but, uh, but this mindset, you see a lot more of it today. And I think it's because we've started seeing more and more people who are sort of nobodies create things that we all use. So I think the one of the most positive things about Mark Zuckerberg's story with Facebook is all of these people saw this nerdy 20-something create something that we now all use, and he dropped out of college, and that was crazy, and like, you know, our parents would have hated us if we dropped out of college. But now there's a backlash to that, though. They say, oh, that's just an anecdote. Bill Gates was just an anecdote. Steve Jobs is just an anecdote. That's not the way to really do things. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of pressure against that, but we now have more and more case studies of this mm -hmm. that, uh, that, you know, the general public sees and appreciates. So, so I think so that helps. I want to mention also, you kind of took this backdoor approach, and we didn't talk about this, but then you created an entire company around it. Like Contently, which you run, essentially great, creates writing content for big brands so that they do this content marketing, which is kind of the, the, the craze among large brands. So yeah, it's another, I mean, speaking of sort of changing the game, I guess, in an industry, advertising was all about paying someone who had people paying attention to them to put your thing in front of those people, right? Uh, everyone wanted to listen to the radio, so if you were a brand, you paid the radio to have your toothpaste commercial on it. And what's sort of changed now because of technology and what we've been trying to do at Contently is uh, the toothpaste company itself, we don't have any toothpaste companies, but like that company that would be an advertiser, they can make the thing that you tune into the radio for. And if it comes from them, then you actually, as the consumer, you go to the brand rather than the brand begging you to come to them. So it's sort of flipping that script. And that model, that mentality So is, wait, wait, give an example. Like, uh, what does that mean? So so normally they would have like some flashy thing, a girl brushing her teeth in the shower or whatever. Yeah. And now you, you create additional content that people get attracted to about the toothpaste yeah. as opposed to forcing the brand out of there. So what's, what's a real example? De uh, deodorant, Old Spice. You know, they, they would have billboards that say like, buy Old Spice or whatever. Like that's an average. You're in a magazine and it's like Old Spice, a fresh scent, whatever. Um, they start making these YouTube videos of this amazing actor. You know, they had these TV, those hilarious TV commercials they had. They, uh, they started making YouTube videos and put them all over the internet of this actor responding to uh, people's questions like on YouTube and, and online and, uh, and making all of these short videos that were enormously entertaining. They weren't commercials, but it was the Old Spice guy basically putting on a comedy show for the world. So then it's almost like free advertising that happens because then people write about those videos. Yeah, people share it. You share it with your friends. So it, there's sort of two categories. There's the entertainment. The other category is education. So we work with a lot of like financial brands, for example. So, you know, Chase, uh, if you go to chase.com on the homepage, it used to be like sign up for these credit cards and log in. And now it's like, log in, and here's stories about how to do better with your finances. So uh, so basically, if you're trying to do better with your personal finances, you're trying to save money for a loan or whatever, manage your credit cards, you need education, you go online on the internet, if the answers to those questions are coming from a bank, you're going to get more respect in that bank if it's helpful. So sort of this idea of giving people content, either in entertainment or education, and that building a relationship, which is really what stories and content and media has always been about. We build a relationship by sort of sharing with people and, and giving information to people. So brands are doing this now to the point that they don't need to pay money to advertise as much. People come to them because they want their content. And does it work? Works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for a lot of people. You got to do it right. 
part of the problem with the internet is it's noisy. Like everyone is bombarding us with content. Yeah, because like let's say take a Super Bowl commercial that hits you know seventy million people. But like if you write a a blog about the Old Spice guy or whatever, that's gonna hit ten thousand people. Yeah, but part of the game now is to do honestly what you do to consistently every day, week in, week out, produce stuff and build up your you know, relationship is built over time. So that Super Bowl commercial might intrigue you and maybe you end up trying the product or whatever. Maybe it works. But what works much better is to spend a year cultivating a relationship by constantly giving information or entertainment uh, over and over again that makes people like you over time. It's like going on a first date and having a great first date. That's not the same as having a whole bunch of good dates, right? And that's what advertisers and brands want. So, I mean, it's it's a bit of a different paradigm uh, than before. But it's that consistency, looking for hits was sort of the old uh, model or paying for hits. Like you pay the Super Bowl to put your thing on there and it's an instant hit because everyone saw it. Uh, but now it's about building that fan base. You see this in music too is actually a great example. The electronic music industry kind of grew in the last 10, 15 years on the back of these artists saying no to the record companies. This is something I wrote about in Smart Cuts. Uh, Skrillex, who became kind of like the Kurt Cobain of the electronic music industry, he had this really terrible experience with the record company with his emo band back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so when he started his, uh, his DJing, he decided, no, I'm not going to do the record company. I'm going to do everything myself. I'm going to be independent. And everyone said, of course, like that's a stupid idea. But he built up, and with other electronic music artists, they cobbled together basically this federation of people creating great music. And they did you know, warehouse parties and shows all over LA. And soon people loved them. And so whatever they did, they would buy it or they would show up for it. And so now these artists like Skrillex and uh, Afrojack and all these electronic music artists, they charge the venues that they play at like $100,000 to play a show. Whereas in the past, the record company would make most of that money and probably charge a lot less. But they now have control of this because they, they went that, that alternate route. But they spent years building up the fan base before they hit big. So I really wonder, like... People don't want that smart cut. They want that shortcut. And they think the shortcut is publisher chooses me or record company chooses me, gives me a big advance, puts me in every store, and I make a billion dollars and become famous. So that's what they think is the shortcut. But there is no such thing. Right. And so you're either going to take the the long, hard way or the long, hard way. <laughs> and in one case, you do it yourself. In the other case, you have to wait. Like even a TV show. Like, you can make, um, I mean, you could rent a studio, right, and write a script for yourself and get your friends in it and make a real professional-looking TV show for probably less than what a production studio would yeah. give you. And then you could pitch Netflix if you it's good enough. You could put it on Amazon, and you, Amazon will take it. And if right. people watch it, then they'll give you money. Yeah. I mean, that's the... So I think there's... Everyone wants shortcuts. Like, we, we want stuff to be faster. We're impatient. We, we want that in life. We want to do more, Right. Uh, but there's still the dumb way. And I think that's the the nuance with smart cuts. Is there's a dumb way that, like, if everyone's doing it, it's probably the dumb way. There's a smarter way to do it that might get you there faster. But it's not the easy way. No, because you have to have, it seems like you have to, A, understand that there is a backdoor way or a smart way to do it. B, then you have to have other skill sets. Like, you have to know how to, um, let's just take in the case of self-publishing. You have to know how to self-publish and all the different parts that go into a book. And then you have to market yourself, which people think the publisher will do, but but they won't. Um, uh, there's all these extra skills you need to build. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that's, I'm obsessed with this idea of multidisciplinarity. It's like an obnoxious word. Did you just word. make a word? <laughs> I think so. But multidisciplinary people, like we, back in the day when universities came out, actually really interesting. So in the Renaissance or whenever, university came from this idea of the universal man, which was someone who was good at all of the major disciplines. So you went to a university to become really good at an instrument, become really good at science, to become really good at politics, become really good at philosophy. That's what a university was. Today, universities have sort of bastardized that and, you know, it's turned into this, like, you're weak in all of those things and you don't care about any of them and you take these multiple choice tests. So I'm on board with it, with your position on, on a, lot of, uh, a lot of the way education goes now. But that idea produced, you know, the Galileos and the Leonardos and what they did is they combined these disparate ideas from different places and invented new paths to or new things. Uh, and I think that's something that you see when you look closely at some of these people that we revere that are great inventors or innovators. It's very rare that they went up sort of the traditional way and they studied, you know, they got a bachelor's in chemistry and a master's in chemistry and a PhD in chemistry and they only studied this one thing. And then they made a breakthrough somehow. Like it's very rare. Like usually that person has someone else in their life that makes them look somewhere that wasn't that linear chemistry thing, or they went off and did something else, or they decided to also learn to play the violin, and that insight came from combining violin with chemistry. So I, you know, it, it's so interesting because I remember when I was first um, looking into graduate school for computer science, and I was really interested in computer games. And this guy who was convincing me to go to one school, he had created the World Champion Othello program. And what had happened was he was working on a PhD in speech recognition. He was he got stuck and he he took a year off to make the world champion Othello program using roughly the same techniques, but he kind of refined them. Then he went back to speech recognition and then he built this entire career. I mean, all the technology behind Siri and Alexa and all this kind of came from his initial work, but he had to take that year off to make the world champion Othello program. That's amazing. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. A big fan of sabbaticals, really. And this is something that I, I'm writing about now. When you, especially when you go somewhere outside of your element, and people talk about travel and how it sort of changes your brain. If you go somewhere where it's really unfamiliar, and you learn something that's unfamiliar, and you learn to be bicultural almost. Whether that biculturalism is like, hey, I'm American. I'm learning what it's like to live in France and how French people think, or if it's I'm a computer game programmer that's going over to this other industry to learn the culture of this thing, that's really valuable. They they show that that itself leads to people to be more open-minded in general, but it also leads to good ideas directly. Right, and, and also just to, to build on that, it doesn't have to be a different, you don't have to travel necessarily to a different physical location. You could travel right. to a different mental location. Because right. a lot of kids, people with parents are not going to go off to, you know, um, China or whatever and right. explore the world. But uh, before we get into the power of difference, I want to talk about, um, and there's so many interesting examples in the power of difference. I know you're a year away from, or almost a year away from that book coming out, but I want to talk about it anyway. Um, but contently, your business, it seemed like you had, even though you're taking this backdoor away the whole way, I, I think it's important for people to recognize that there's still difficulties all along the way that are unexpected. And and really the challenge is not to avoid difficulties, but to bounce back from them quickly. So you could say whatever you want, but I know when you were beginning your company and it was starting to take off, you had like personal disaster to the extent where you were like sleeping on your friend's couch while you were building up a $100 million plus company. So yeah, what so happened? The I would say the worst 
day of my life was, so there were a few times, back up, there were a few times in the history of our company when we almost went under because, you know, that's the roller coaster of starting a company. The greatest idea, you're going to forget how that accounting works this way and you're going to run out of money. Um, we've been through a lot of those, but we were at a point, the worst day of my life, we're at this point where we were kind of on the, the cusp of either blowing up or blowing up the bad way. Uh, you know, we. It's funny how blowing up can mean two things, right? Yeah, <laughs> in uh, in completely opposite directions. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like killing it, but killing it. There, there's words like that that. Uh, yeah. Um, so so it was this really sort of crucial time where we were we were trying to you know to make this happen, and it looked like it was going to be real. And in the midst of that, I was about to publish my first book, which had been a life dream. That's why I got into this business with you know writing and you know everything that we do with constantly the, the is, dream come true you had a company and your yeah, book was coming out on my list of things i want to do in my life build a company and write a book um so my first book was coming out and uh super stressful in all the ways but super excited and then i had this uh this personal disaster that was it was really bad um that basically ruined me emotionally and financially and the worst day of my life I was uh, invited to speak at Columbia University with Peter Thiel, the uh, the Facebook billionaire guy. Also an ex-podcast guest of okay. the James Altucher show. So uh, a thousand people came. I interviewed him on stage and we talked about our respective books and uh, and it went super well. It was, it was this great moment, a big stage, a lot of recognition. And then I shook everyone's hands and I ran downtown to Soho House, which is like this uh, club place where... People go to Hobnob, and it was this event called The Influencers, where it was 50 uh, people, like heads of ad agencies and modeling agencies, and Bill Nye the Science Guy Boy, was this there. this sounds like a really horrible day so far. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Nye the Science Guy was there. Uh, Rozelle, the world champion beatboxer, were there. So these incredible people that I had no business hobnobbing with. And I went there because they'd asked me to give a talk about my recent research and, and the book. And so I go and I give the talk and it was great. And Bill Nye shakes my hand and, you know, the head of some advertising agent, the head of a speaker's bureau is like, I can't wait to read it. And then I walk outside with my backpack and I realize that I forgot to arrange a place to sleep that night because I was homeless. And it's 1.02 in the morning and I look at my cell phone and it's 1% battery. I start texting someone, my friend Nat, and I was like, hey, please, are you awake so I can stay and then my phone dies, and then it starts raining. It's like so, the universe was writing this like dark comedy. Uh, and then I remember I was in such a bad emotional place because of what was going on in my personal life, and no one knew. It was supposed to be the greatest day. Like these things that I was accomplishing, I was getting my ideas out. Like I was getting to meet people. Like this was I was on a you know it was an inflection point for me, and no one knew that I was going to go sleep on a park bench that night. And, and so it's raining and it was like, and I hadn't yet like broken down crying yet because of this experience. And that night I broke, I sat down on the cobblestones in the meatpacking district and I started sobbing with a backpack that had everything I owned in it. And then I had to decide, do I go sleep on the bench or do I go to the office and wake up early enough that no one catches me and pretend like everything's okay. And that was really hard. That you know, and I know other people have those moments, but it made me realize that, I mean, I still think there's lessons to learn, but that 
people that I think are amazing, that are doing incredible things. I have no idea what has gone in behind the scenes. I have no idea what they're going through. Do you think your pursuit of your quote-unquote dreams in part contributed to, you know, it kind of, there's like a balance in the universe, you know, the, yeah. the balance in the force. And do you think your pursuit of these dreams also potentially led to this catastrophe? In some ways, I think that I, one of my flaws is I have this tendency to escape into work. Uh, and so, we all have our escapes. Like we all, when we're not unhappy in one thing and we don't know how to confront it, we escape into something that's a little either easier or pleasure-filled for us. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I think for the last little bit, I had not been taking care of myself. I had escaped into work. That certainly contributed, but I think it more exacerbated. And I think that led to, you know, I had put all my eggs in. My personal life was falling apart. Like I was broke. Um I put all my eggs into this sort of future basket of success and recognition and building my career as a, you know, as a, an author and a, a business person. And I think sort of realizing that that's not everything kind of happened at that moment. Um, and I certainly did after that, like now I'm in a much better place where, and I think like all the things that they tell you that I don't listen to, uh, didn't listen to like meditating and like taking time and, uh, like spending more time on yourself and saying no to things, even if you think they'll lead to opportunities. So there's a lot of that that I've sort of worked on that I learned from this experience. So now I feel much more calm about those kinds of things. But I do think maybe the downside of what you're getting at, the downside of being so focused on making it happen by any means, by any path, like figuring out like how to how to make your dream come true. The downside of that is it can be at the to the detriment of your your health, your personal relationships. And there's, there's some balance that can actually help you extend that longevity of that dream. But I think I was lacking that. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Beachbody On Demand is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective, world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs. It gives you the ability to stream over 600 different workouts from programs proven to deliver amazing results, including Pyo, P90X, 21 Day Fix, and more, all from your web-enabled device. You also get extensive nutritional content proven to help people achieve their health and fitness goals, including a brand new, first-of-its-kind cooking show for healthy weight loss and portion control called Fixate, which features over 100 recipe videos. With step-by-step program guides, workout calendars, comprehensive nutrition plans, Fixate, and the motivation and support of a growing community, which is critical, Beachbody On Demand is the total package. I'll tell you why I started Beachbody On Demand. I hate the gym, and there's no arguing that fact but I value health. So I use Beachbody On Demand's 10-minute trainer and also their 21-day fix. And I'm also considering the 22 minutes hardcore program because it's the same trainer. I like his style, it's motivation, and I feel 22 minutes is the next step up from 10, which makes sense. This program makes it easy for you to find the increments that work for you. This is a brand new service, but already has over a million members. And now you can claim a free trial membership 
when you text James to 303030. Get full access to this entire platform for free. Just text James to 303030. You know, before we started the podcast, you were also telling me how um, you were writing The Power of Difference. And I had run into you a bunch of times while you were writing it, and it sounded like such a fascinating topic. I wanted to bring you on the podcast, but then you told me you threw out what you had been working on and you just took off. You went to uh, uh, Colombia, Russia, Argentina, Chile. I, I got the four countries right. I remember yeah, those. Yeah. And, uh, I also did I, Scotland and Australia. So how do you take off when you're running this company? Like I've been to your company offices. You're, you're running a real company up there. <laughs> it's a busy place. How did you, why did your company let you get away with that? Weren't you raising money last time we, we talked? Yeah, we took care of that. Uh, so you so- raised the money and you're like, okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm out of here. Um, so part of it was for my sanity. Um, well, so we decided that after you've been at the company for five years, you make it that long, you haven't moved on, then we are going to force you to take two months off sabbatical paid to go do something that has nothing to do with what we're working on. All right, that's a good idea. I'm going to, don't tell that to all the employees of my company, but uh, <laughs> they're all going to listen to this anyway. So we have we have a smattering of people that are starting to do it. One guy right now is in like the desert in Moab or something like hanging out with like spiritual gurus or whatever. So everyone's, uh, I know. Because Moab is where they all go. I don't where, know if Moab where is, is Moab. I don't know. It's, it sounds like a desert. I forget where he actually is. Maybe it's Joshua Tree. I don't know. <laughs> um, so uh, so people are kind of doing their own different thing or like sail around the world or, you know, take a train or, you know, I don't know. Uh, whatever you want to do that's not contently. Um, and uh, and so I decided to that I was going to use this as an excuse to go to a bunch of places I'd never been to, put myself out of my comfort zone, and to sit and to write and to focus on one creative thing, to strip away, like cancel my email, uh, not talking to anybody on the phone, just going to be somewhere by myself in my thoughts, and to work and to write and to meet people. And so I picked all of these places. Some of them were places that I was going to end up writing about. Uh, so I went to to Moscow, Russia because I was looking at Soviet art and kind of uh, subversive art and sort of a movement that happened there. I ended up staying longer because Moscow was fascinating and people were really generous and nice. Um, so I had some excuses, but mostly it was, I want to go away. And uh, and so before I did that, I've been working for, since Smart Cuts came out, I've been working on this idea for this next book, so researching and interviewing, and I had three or four chapters, three chapters well-written, one chapter kind of crappily written, and, uh, and I threw them away because they were bad. And then I started you know, February 1st through March 31st, and I wrote the draft of this book um, that had been on my mind for you know, forever. Now I have you know, six months of self-doubt and revisions to go through. Uh, Which, by the way, is always part of the process. Yeah. Like The first draft is, is just that, a first draft. Yeah, so actually the side story, when my first book was coming out, I remember emailing my agent when it was a month away before like my life fell apart. And I emailed him and I said, you know what? I don't think the book is good enough. I don't think, I think we need like another year to work on this. And to, like, I'm stressing out, let's cancel the launch. And he like called me from a golf course or something. And he's like, every author I've ever had has sent me this email or had this phone call. It's going to be fine. So like we all, like if, I think if you're a professional or if you're trying to be a professional, you're going to be terrified and think your work is garbage. So yeah, but uh, so I'm at that phase. Um, but getting out of, you know, I didn't think about work at all for two months and I, you weren't worried about like what's the monthly P and L or your clients because your client you're the main guy so your clients must depend on a little handholding from you like how did you yeah. deal with that I mean it also part of it is uh, so 
we hired a CMO who's amazing and kind of set her up for a couple months before I left to, you know, Shane's gone. So Kelly is the one uh, and Shane has his full trust in her. So, and it kind of gave her a chance to become the boss and to, to run things her way and to, to sort of get the respect and to hand off some of those relationships. That was actually really good for someone who's more of a professional than me in management to actually now be playing a bigger role than I am now that I'm back. My role now is going to be more sort of evangelism and, you know, company culture and people operations and that sort of thing. Uh, so that that helped as sort of that setup. It gave her an opportunity to not be encumbered by my reputation and whether people liked me or not having an effect on what they think of her. Okay, so the power of difference, working title. I love the concept of it. What's it about? So the idea is that Again, on sort of the theme of breakthroughs, how how do breakthroughs happen in you know in history and in life? Uh, when different people, however you define difference, there's a I'm deliberately not using the word diversity because in America we initially jump to race and diversity is a way that white people get around not talking about race. Uh, so any way that people can be different, the way you think, uh, especially diversity of thought, um, when different people come together, they either make magic happen or they make chaos happen or they figure out a way to avoid each other. Uh, we want to have this sort of stasis. So if you disagree with someone, you have sort of very different opinions or very different perspective on something. When you come together with someone uh, that is opposite of you, you're either going to figure out that, hey, we need to stop talking, which is what a lot of humans do, is why we have a lot of problems in the world. Or together, you're going to come up with something brilliant. And this is how you know, the greatest inventions have happened. So one of the sort of the key analogies that sort of made me come to this is uh, my dad works at a, a nuclear power plant in the desert of Idaho. And when I was a kid, he taught us how when two different particles smash together, they make heat. And that heat makes steam, this boils water, and the steam turns turbines. The turbines make electricity. And like the seed of nerdiness was planted in my young heart. Uh, so growing up, we always thought about, we, in my town, we talked about nuclear as a source of pride. It's this way to make cheap energy. But uh, as I got older and learned about all the nuclear weapons we have pointed at each other, you know, uh, around the world, and realized that, you know, the other side of that reaction is destruction. We might blow ourselves up as human beings because of that very same fundamental principle. So that thing that happens with atomic energy, the potential of different things crashing into each other, that happens with human beings all the time. It happens in every relationship, every company, every organization. We're all different in, in our ways. And in society and in companies, we talk about like culture fit or getting along or you know, not seeing the differences or being united. And, and there's a downside to that in that you make less progress when you do that. And there's potential energy in those different people coming together. Actually, the history of how we got atomic energy is really interesting. It was some guy who saw on like a photo plate, oh, it was, it was a chemist who was dissolving rocks in acid, because that's what chemists do, apparently. Dissolving rocks in acid, he discovered this silvery rock called uranium. Some other guy saw that like when the uranium was by his photo plates, it made them dark. And he was like, that's interesting. And then Marie Curie, who's very famous, uh, she discovered that this was particles flying off of the uranium. And then, like, her husband, who was a physicist, was like, what if we did this? And they got a Nobel Prize for sort of figuring this stuff out. And then, like, a food scientist figured out that radiation killed bacteria and kept food good. And then some, I forget what it was, like, some guy from New Zealand who studied plants figured this other thing out. 
And then after 30 people from all over the world, young, old, male, female, different languages, finally we figured out how to harness the atom. And that's how really like every great in innovation has happened. You know, this invokes lateral thinking. Like these people are often coming in at these things. So it's sort of building on what I've written about how, before. How, um, I agree with the concept that no man is an island. Like you can't, like Einstein can't just come up with his theories of relativity by himself. He had the entire pyramid of sure. physics before him to stand on. And he had other people working on very similar and Niels theories. Bohr, his rival who was trying to beat to the breakthrough. Right. So they were all close and they all sort of knew each other. How important is it that the different people know each other and that they're kind of part of a scene together? Uh, it's interesting. So, I mean, the concept really is collaboration, right? Mm. And there's different sort of closeness of collaborators. You have, you know, Penn and Teller, right? And you have improv comedians that these that they're really close and that's how, you know, they they collaborate. There's also sort of weaker collaboration where you're building off other people's work. I think the key thing is not necessarily the closeness, but it's uh what I call intellectual friction. So that you don't have all of these heads that are thinking the same way. Because if you do, then you may as well have one head. You know, two heads are better than one unless they both think the same. Um, so the idea of cultivating, sort of being in this zone, I guess, between like not engaging, no friction, or like we all agree, everything's fine, or we're ignoring each other. And on the other side, we are so at odds that we want to destroy each other. Like, you know, Einstein and Niels Bohr, they didn't want to punch each other. But if they got to that point, they probably wouldn't have got their best work done. So being in this zone of intellectual friction, where you're willing to debate, argue, fight, have conflict, consider that you need to revise your viewpoint, that whole thing, that's more important from what I can tell than the closeness of the collaboration. I mean, a great example is like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, the guys at Xerox, the guys at Compaq yeah. or Digital or whatever. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Yeah. Uh, Roy Lichtenstein, Andy Warhol, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs. So often that foil... So originally, I wanted to call the book Foils. I, I sort of expanded, you know, the concept is bigger than just the rivalry thing. Then I think of aluminum foil, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's this really interesting thing. So one of the, the chapters that I wrote about is how we developed uh, hip-hop. I say we. Like, I just got into hip-hop. You, like, you're, I, you're I grew up in Idaho. We listen to country music. <laughs> in Idaho. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but hip-hop is fascinating. The way it developed is it started with in the Bronx with these DJ battles. And the DJ battle was literally, you had a basketball court. And on one side of the court was a DJ on the other side of the court was another DJ. People came to party to dance, and whoever had the best music and the loudest music, people would dance on your side. So there's this war between DJs to like get better speakers, to have better records. And then eventually, in this war, the MC, who was you know, the guy that was like announcing the show, he's like, oh, my man, the DJ, he's coming up. Everyone put your hands in the air. They started insulting each other. There's this one really famous one where it's the first time you hear uh, this is great. It was uh, Busy B, who was kind of the... Like, everyone loved him. He was the guy that was like, put your hands in the air like you don't care. Like, and that was the thing. Everyone comes to a party. And the other guy was, he. you get on the mic and they expected him to be like, all right, everyone get down. Instead, he just destroys Busy B. And basically rhymes about how, like, his DJ sucks and how he's old hat and this is the new school. And then the next week, Busy B came back and he's like, you know, I'm going to destroy this guy. And so that is how rap developed is this weekly battle of if you lost this sort of war of poetry then you were going to come back and do something different. Same thing with the DJs. A lot of what we developed in uh, music technology came from this. DJs who were like, hey, there's no way to fade out one record and put on another record 
I'm going to solder in this switch so that I can do this. And then they did that. And then, you know, the other DJs were like, whoa, how did that happen? And when we started having electronic music, they would hack the memory card so they could fit bigger samples. So it was all in this sort of battle to like who can make the best music in the best party. What happened in hip hop that is sort of the downside of this is it went too far at a certain point where the rivalry turned into it got personal and you had people like uh, Tupac getting murdered uh, because of the rivalry that got too intense. And so they sort of went out of this intellectual friction zone into this destruction zone. But a lot of great collaborations happen in this sort of competitive kind of way where the goal is not to destroy the other person like necessarily, but that goal of competition is actually to elevate the craft and to elevate what you're doing and to find those lateral paths to making better stuff. So I wrote about the Wu-Tang Clan, how there were these nine guys who you look at them and this is again, sort of getting at these myths we think about diversity. You look at them and it's like, oh, these you know young black men with no fathers growing up in the projects, but they're from different gangs. You know, this guy Ghostface, he was like super emotional and the Jizza was like very cerebral and Raekwon was like very aggressive. And they had like been in gang fights and some of them sold drugs and, and you know, one was 16, the other was 26. So they're actually very different. They kind of hated each other. And they then, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, initially. You know, I did like a lot of their websites, but you know, back really? in the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> my, my old company. So they're, they're amazing. So, uh, you know, they, everyone knows they went on to become the hip hop group that kind of changed everything and inspired all these artists. They've sold between them like 50 million albums or something. So how did that happen? Because... Again, like nine people in a group, nobody's making any money in the first song or two. Yeah. And also, like, have you ever worked with a team of nine people? Well, like, I worked with them. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it's chaos, right? It's hard. And I mean, that's the thing about this idea of like collaboration, teamwork. It's this whole thing. We all know this is how like we make progress, but we're all so bad at it. Like, it's very hard. Um, so when they came together, these nine guys, they, you know, some of them hated each other. Some of them were cousins, but, you know, they were, were not down. But, uh, Riza, who's the guy that's now like a Hollywood type, and it was kind of the leader, he did this sort of mafia family move where he got all the families to the table and he said, I'm going to make you a deal. Give me five years and I'm going to make you number one and then I'm going to help you have a solo career. So you're going to come together for this coalition and then after that, you're going to go your ways, but we're going to take over hip hop. And, uh, and he orchestrated, he sort of turned their aggression towards each other into the same thing that sort of developed hip-hop. He said, I'm going to produce all of these beats that we're going to have for our album. And Method Man, you and Raekwon, you're going to go down and you're going to battle for who gets to be on this beat. So write your words, come down, both of you do it, and whichever one's better, you're the one on the track. And so they kind of use that as sort of productive friction, the productive competition to, to make this record. And then they also, like, they combined, you know, kung fu movies and you know, Islamic mathematics and all these things that they just uh, sort of took all these very disparate pieces and then they made this record that changed the world and was amazing. And after that, like once they got successful, like they became friends and they, you know, and, and they're all like refer to each other as their brothers and their family, but they still fought on and off. You look at Google, like Wu-Tang Clan beef for years. They were getting into fights. They were walking out on each other, but they always- Yeah, some of them would like just disappear. Yeah, they wouldn't show up to concerts. But they always came back to make that next record. They didn't stop. And this is the thing, one of the things that I sort of get at uh, is you look at why partnerships or marriages fail. It's not because they fight. Like fights often, you know, are a leading indicator, but it's because they stop fighting. That's when you know the game's over. So when you start ignoring each other mm. because you don't want to engage. If you keep fighting, eventually you're, gonna, you're either going to murder each other 
or you're going to resolve and get to a better place. And this is what the Wu-Tang Clan did, is instead of murdering each other, they focused that and they stayed in that sort of intellectual friction zone, they'd walk away once in a while, but they'd come back and they'd engage again. This is why like corporate mergers often fail, is because the two companies, they just stop, they have organizational silence, they, they stop engaging with each other. Like they're afraid of fighting because of their different styles or whatever, that they, uh, they say, oh, the culture fit didn't work out. Yeah, the cultures didn't talk to each other. So it's interesting because it reminds me of your initial uh, example of nuclear energy is that you have to kind of throw these atoms together to spin off other things that create, you know, heat and steam and electricity and so on. You can't, if, you're, if you're sitting in the cubicle, I always use an example on these podcasts. If you're sitting in the cubicle at Procter & Gamble, and I always, for some reason, pick on Procter, just like <laughs> you picked on toothpaste, I'll pick on yeah. Procter & Gamble. What do you do with this information? It, it seems like you have to kind of put yourself in situations where you're like atoms being thrown at each other, like the Wu-Tang Clan were like atoms being thrown at each other or, or you know, Einstein and Niels Bohr or whatever were thrown at each other and they have this intellectual friction. Yeah, so you need to, sometimes it happens naturally. You, a competitor pops up and you're like, we have to do this. But a lot of times... You need to cultivate an environment. If you're a, a leader, you can, and some of the stuff that I write about that it's too much to get into, you can cultivate environments where people can have this kind of relationship. But if you're in that cubicle of Procter & Gamble and you're not sort of creating the environment, what you need to do is you need to seek out opportunities for your mind to be changed, for you to be pushed beyond uh, where you would go. An example that happened to me that uh, that I think could be useful is I wrote a, a blog post one time, like a year and a half ago maybe, um, that was a thought piece on the U.S. prison system and what's wrong with it. There's so much violence in prisons. So I proposed in this blog post, what if we put everyone in solitary confinement and we gave them an Oculus Rift and had them play Second Life Prison Edition where you interact with other prisoners but you can't actually, if you shank them in the game, you don't get shanked for in real life. And you get education, you unlock Minecraft so you can play games or whatever. And uh, so I proposed this in a blog post. Everyone's going to want to go to jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is fine, like, as long as we rehabilitate that. Anyway, so it was this whole thing. And it was, it was, I was thinking about this, and I, I invited people to, uh, to, like, weigh in. Like, people who are actually experts in criminal justice. Like, what do you think? So this guy from MIT who's a, a professor who's, like, a very uh, outspoken guy, very smart guy. He wrote a piece for The Atlantic a few months later that, uh, so my my publicist sent me a text one day and she's like, you should check out this article. And it was like, the URL was like theatlantic.com slash Shane Snow something something. And I was like, oh, cool. And she's like, no, it's not cool. So I read it and it was a hit piece. Basically, it was like, this guy Shane Snow is an idiot. Here's everything that's wrong with his stupid post about the prison system. Here's everything he doesn't understand. And the guy destroyed me. What did he say? Uh, basically, all the... There's some stuff that he was wrong about because his research was outdated. He was saying it's cruel and unusual punishment because you get like uh, simulation sickness, which the new VR simulations don't do to most people. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it was sort of fundamental flaws in how prison is funded and how much it costs and, and all this. And he used me as a case study for why technology can't solve every problem. So he made some good points. He made some points I disagreed with heavily. I still think it's an interesting idea to explore. Uh, but he destroyed me. And never have I, in a public setting, been destroyed that badly. And so I was mad, and I was like, can we curse on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was like, fuck this guy. And, uh, you know, he's dumb. And all my friends were like, yeah, he's a slob, whatever. And uh, Were you getting other people calling you saying, oh, man, Shane, this guy ripped you apart? Yeah, I was. 
And, uh, and it was, that had never happened to me quite that way. And the problem was he was right about some things that I had not thought about, but he was also wrong about some things. And so I was focused on how he was wrong and how I was right and my pride and my ego. So like a week went by and I was still mad at this, but I cooled down a little bit. So I emailed him and, uh, and I said, hey, look, you seem like a smart guy. I just want you to know that I'm not a monster. He also made something about how like I was probably afraid of being prison raped that I took like offense to. And I was like, everyone is afraid of that. Uh, and like, you know, I know people that have had that happen to anyway. So I was mad. So I wrote him this email. I was like, Hey, I'm not a monster. I'm a nice guy. Like this is well-meaning. I appreciate your insight. You can imagine how it would feel to have this happen. I think you're wrong about this and this, you know, I will concede your point on this, but can we disagree, agree to disagree? But you know, I just have to say this. And he wrote back this super nice email where it was like, like, you know what? It's cool of you to respond to this. And like, I'll change the thing of the research that I, I got wrong, but agree to disagree. But if uh, if you ever want to come to my class at MIT sometime and talk to students, let's have a debate. Like this could be fun. Uh, I respect your work. And like so, he like was very mature. Like he's been through this a few times. But then months later, I was writing. Actually, a few months ago, I was writing another blog post that was going to be controversial. Um, that was about uh, that was the healthcare fight was going on, and it was a post about how we could fix the U.S. healthcare system. And uh, basically, it was a case for a single payer system but sort of from a more sort of conservative, trickle-down economics sort of point of view. So I had like my dad in mind, like I'm super liberal, my dad's super conservative. So I had him in mind of like, what's the, the argument that would at least get him to think about this? So I wrote this post and I was like, I'm gonna get annihilated by some angry people on the internet because it's kind of political. So, you know, I was having friends sort of edit it and you know, you want other people to give input. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to email this MIT guy. So I emailed him and I said, hey, I'm writing this post that you're going to hate. Like, and he's more liberal than me probably, but he, you're going to hate it, I'm sure. Would you mind tearing it apart for me before I publish it? And he said, with pleasure. And so then he wrote me this super thought, you read the post, wrote me the super thoughtful thing and I edited my post with his criticism in mind and made it a way better uh, blog post. And it did very, very well. And I think because of that, and then he emailed me and he said, you know what, I'm working on a post right now. Would you mind looking at it? And so now we kind of have this relationship where, and I actually think like we agree on more than we thought we did, but my biggest critic helping me make my work better was a breakthrough for me. So going back to the cubicle guy, that's the kind of thing that you can cultivate in your own work. If you want to do better, if you want to upgrade what you're doing, don't go to the people and you need help or whatever, don't go to the people who are going to agree with you. Go to the people who legitimately hate you or dislike you or disagree with you and give them a chance to tell you what's wrong and then actually absorb it and actually filter that and take it to heart. And if you can depersonalize, like, oh, it's not about me, it's about ideas, that's, I think, the first step to sort of getting this sort of breakthrough collaboration friction thing to, to work as an individual. You know, I don't know if it's necessarily you have to go to someone who 100% hates you. I think... There's a spectrum, you know, like you just take the story in the, in the Bible of, uh, the, the farmer who has the one son who stays and then there's the prodigal son who goes away. He loves both of them and both of them contribute to yeah. life on the farm, but they're, they're all three needed. Yeah. You know, it's not necessarily the bad son and the good is more needed than the good son and or vice versa. Yeah. I think it's, it's looking outside of your, cause you still lane. needed your friends to give you criticism too. Exactly. Well, so a uh, fun story when I was a kid, 
Uh, we were driving in my van in the cold in Idaho, like 100 miles in the middle of nowhere. Hip-hop central. Hip-hop central. <laughs> we were bumping Wu-Tang. So I was with my grandpa, who was like, he was old and had cancer and was shaky. It was a few years before he died. My dad, who's an engineer, and then me and my brother in the back seat fighting. And the van breaks down. And uh, so my dad and my grandpa are trying to fix it. And it turns out the fuel pump, the thing that squirts gasoline into the engine, was broken. We're in the middle of nowhere, miles away from anything. No cop is ever going to you know, go by and, and help us out. This was pre-cell phones. So we were kind of screwed. We were just going to have to wait for hours for someone to come by. And it was freezing. And my mom's home with like a new baby. Uh, so what happened is my dad and my grandpa, my grandpa, who he was uh, like a veteran, my dad who's an engineer, they're trying to collaborate. They're, you know, different generations, different minds or whatever. And uh, my brother and I are fighting in the back with a super soaker. My dad turns around to be like, would you cut it out? And then my grandpa says, wait, bring your toy up here. And so he got the kids involved and we ended up, they ended up putting the super soaker, connecting the super soaker to like a, a gas hose. And we spent 100 miles pumping up the super soaker and shooting gas into the engine, driving like 20 miles an hour to make it home. And it's kind of this like amazing intergenerational hack story. Yeah. Where what my grandpa did that was super cool is he recognized that he could get inspiration. They could get inspiration to solve their problem from a younger... They weren't going to ask the kids how to, you know, how to fix the engine. But he was like, maybe paying attention to what they're doing could actually give us an idea to, to how to solve the problem. So I think that kind of mentality of looking outside and not writing people off because of who they are and like what their expertise is or how old they are or where they come from, I think that's the important... And it's easier said than done. But I think to, to what you're getting at, it doesn't have to just be someone who's your rival. It's finding the people who are not like you. Who, who, the people who are not like you, but who are also maybe interested in going in the same direction. Yeah. So you were all interested in going in the same direction. You, your yeah. father, your grandfather, Yeah, your we brother. want to get home. You know, so it reminds me like I'm, I'm, I'm watching these videos of Steve Martin right now. He's doing this master class on how to do stand-up. And in the very first video, he says... Uh, he basically gives us the first homework assignment, find other people who are also interested in comedy and talk to them. And he says, don't talk to them for like a few minutes or an hour. Talk to them for days at a time, like exchanging ideas and pitching ideas and trashing each other's ideas. Like just really- I love that. To talk to, like build your scene is what he's saying essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think there's- so one of the things too is uh, there's lots of ways that human beings are different and there's some things that are very good proxies for like you're really different. So things like age, for example, the grandpa has a lot more experience than the kid. Mm -hmm. But the more you get to know someone, the more you learn their story, this is something I'm really passionate about. The more you learn a person's story, the more you learn that every experience that we've had is different and it shapes our perspective. Like We're all different in a lot of ways deep down, but we try really hard to relate and to sort of be the same. And so when you have sort of a superficial relationship with someone, superficial conversation about comedy, you're going to stick mostly to agreement or to like how you can relate to each other. Oh, we both love hip hop or whatever it is. Um, but the more you get to know someone, the more you get to down to the nuances and you give each other permission to speak from that place that's unique. I think that makes a huge difference. A lot of us are, are very similar on the outside, but when you learn about someone's backstory, there's things that we can bring that... Uh, that can help, and and it's the depth of relationship. I think it's a you know it's about seeing humans as unique humans, 
and digging down to that. So, so what are some other other examples? So you have the Wu Tang Clan in your book. What are some of the other examples in your book? Uh, one of the I'm I'm obsessed with. Uh, so it's the book is a lot of it is about problem solving. You know, we solve problems. You know, breakthroughs are kind of this euphemism for solving a problem in a better way. Um, there's a lot of great analogies in uh, the military, in police work. Um, so I, I have. Uh, it's a lot to go into, but I have uh, a whole chapter on groundbreaking women in the FBI and in the in the NYPD, and how for years and years women were not allowed to be FBI agents, and then as soon as they were, suddenly both the men and women were better at solving problems. They got more creative because they had different voices. How'd you even like think about this uh, I, issue? How I got led to that one is I saw a study that got conducted that got completely ignored. That basically said that female police officers shoot fewer people but don't have lower uh, success rates in terms of their police work. It was really interesting. So what about a female cop makes you less likely to shoot people? They actually pull their guns more than men. Uh, so I saw this bit of research, and then I dug into it, and I interviewed you know, the first female FBI agents and uh, you know, the first black female homicide detective in New York. And uh, So there's a bunch of really cool stories, including the, the first woman detective that I don't want to ruin it because it's like the opening story. Of, that's like a big surprise in the book. Um, but there's something about when you have a, a group of people who are working on something together, if they're very similar and they've been working for a long time, they have these norms and practices. This is how we handle this kind of situation. And as soon as you have someone who's different and different enough that, uh, that it, it sort of break, cracks that uniformity in some way, uh, it tends to lead to not only you have a, you know, a female officer and a group of male officers trying to plan how they're going to do like a sting or whatever, not only will she probably have different ideas because she has a different perspective of seeing the world as a woman, but because she's there, and studies prove this, the men in the room will be more likely to think of other alternative solutions than just like, let's get our guns, boys, whatever it is. So I sort of got into the policing thing from that. And uh, there's also statistics on gay cops, for example. Like, really interesting if you have uh, homosexual cops in a police department there does tend to be discrimination, like some of the cops treat them badly still, even though it's 2017, but they will lead to this marginal improvement in problem solving simply because people are not sort of assuming like, oh, we're all on board with the macho plan or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I got into that, and the military is really interesting because we think about uh, winning a war and soldiers as, like you're a soldier, you got to get broken down. You're not an individual. You're part of this army, right? It's a bunch of hammers that get sent out to win the war. And the creativity happens at the top. It's the general. You know, however good the general is, soldiers obey orders. That's kind of the paradigm we've had with war. And there's a couple of things that are interesting about that. You look at the greatest military victories, like the underdog victories or, you know, how the Allies won World War II. It's the collaboration of generals who have very different styles that leads to this sort of supersized outcome. Like what? Like who are the generals? So Patton and Eisenhower are a really great example. Uh, Eisenhower was very thoughtful, cerebral, big picture thinker, planner. He's like, he became a politician. Patton didn't believe in defense. He never guarded his flanks. He just was like the run-in guns blazing. And, uh, and he terrified the Germans while Eisenhower steered him in sort of a strategic direction and between the two of them. And they kind of clashed a lot. But between the two of them, they had this great partnership. And, and, you know, when Patton tried to go too far, he wanted to invade Russia. Eisenhower was like, no, pull them off the cliff. Very same thing happened with Hamilton and Washington in the Revolutionary War. These guerrillas are trying to fight for, you know, American soil. Part of what happened is they had these generals and these lieutenants 
who were very different. You know, you had the Hamiltons, I forget his name, uh, the Frenchman uh, who had a very different style than Hamilton. Hamilton was like, we're storming the trench. And the other guy was like, we're going to back you up. And, uh, and Washington was constantly trying to pull Hamilton off the edge, but Hamilton was pulling Washington past the point where he would have been willing to go. And this is kind of how the war was won. So the thing now with warfare that's really interesting, oh, all sorts of great stories of like pirates and Indians and free slaves teaming up to like save America in the War of 1812, like amazing stuff. Uh, but today warfare, we've actually started to change this paradigm of uh, we're all uh, uniform cogs in the machine because wars now are not fought in like rows of soldiers pointing guns at each other, marching slowly. Wars are fought inside of villages where you don't know if the enemy is some guy with a bomb strapped to his chest. So soldiers have to interact with the locals. They have to get to know people. They have to be culturally articulate. And so it actually helps to have soldiers from different backgrounds in a platoon. If you have a platoon of soldiers from Idaho going into Afghanistan, it's going to be less effective than if you have a platoon of soldiers from a guy from Idaho, a guy from Hawaii, you know, a girl from Texas, uh, because you can interpret uh, problem-solving situations from lots of different angles that maximizes your chance of of success versus everyone being on the same page. So that's what's changing in war now. I mean, war is like obviously very complicated and and ghastly, but the military today has caught on to this. It's not just like some guys have horses and some guys have swords and some guys have guns. It's that we need everyone to collaborate in the solution of the problem rather than only the generals up top. So, so let's say you're listening to this you're, I don't know, between 40 and 50 years old, you're frustrated with your career, job, you want to switch things up. What's the, what's the first piece of advice, the takeaway you can, you can do to start uh, executing on whatever it is you're, you're interested in? So there's, there's a few things. Um, one of the main concepts that sort of underlies this, like our ability as humans to collaborate with people who aren't like us or to accept someone else's viewpoint or someone else's idea. Uh, what it boils down to is this thing called intellectual humility. So so you think that's possible? Like right now you you look on Facebook and it's, you know, 50% of the world versus the other 50% yeah, of the world. Yeah, it's a shit show. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so this is part of why this has been on my mind for the last couple of years and why kind of these concepts, it's, you know, it can be applied to business in sort of obvious ways, but it's kind of bigger than that, I guess, this idea of humans making progress together, right? Um so yeah, things are pretty dark and we are sort of chiseling in the divisions between, especially between our diversity of thought. Ideologically, we're building these walls between each other, literally even. Um, so that, I mean, that is a challenge. I did this national, so I did a bunch of research, like uh, original studies. Um, I did this national survey of Americans asking, basically, do you think you're open-minded? And then survey questions that actually get at whether you are open-minded. The thing that open-mindedness is sort of this amorphous term, but the thing underlying it is this idea of intellectual humility, being willing to revise your viewpoint, not being threatened by someone else who's not like does, you. Does anyone say they're not open-minded? <laughs> 95% of Americans say they're open-minded, but 50% of them are below average on the intellectual humility scale. Actually, most Americans are not very intellectually humble. Um, and most people are that way. And part of this is because of how the brain developed and 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 a lot of yeah because you have to assume you're right some of the time so that you yeah. can trust your decision making when you're in the jungle exactly exactly and when you're surviving in a small tribe the other tribe is the bad guy so you're not willing to like revise your viewpoint on whether they're bad right because like, they're going to take kill you and take your only mammoth stake 
So, uh, so there's a reason for all of this. Um, but yeah, intellectual humility. So the question that I had and I explore for a few chapters of the book is like underneath this ability for us to like to do this is this thing called intellectual humility. And it's easier for us to have this humility with people who are from our tribe, people who look like us and talk like us, speak our same lingo. It's harder for people who aren't like this. And this leads to all the things like racism and uh, classism and all of that that uh, underlie a lot of our problems in the world today. Um, but people who are good at that, there's things that you can do to, it's not a fixed thing in your brain. Um, the sort of fear of something new is a fixed thing in your brain. But uh, part of it is exposure to other viewpoints. Um, and and being, being willing to accept them as, as viable. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple things that you can do sort of concretely, at least from this research that I did, that can help you to be more open to this. And, uh, and the two of them are, one is putting yourself into a situation where you are a minority, like in whatever sort of form. And this is why for me, like traveling around the world and like hanging out in Russia, like I wanted to do this because I, I wanted to sort of put this in practice. Like I'm very eager to have this happen. So I'm probably already sort of more open to it than, than not. Um, but putting yourself in a position where you're a minority. So great story, actually. I'm rambling on all these stories. No, it's great. Uh, there's a reason why we think of Malcolm X as this great civil rights leader. This great, he was an amazing guy. And we don't think of him as this racist asshole, monster. And it's because in the last year of his life, he changed his mind dramatically. He, uh, he was this very polarizing figure because you know, he was uh, one of the first 400 members of this uh, kind of culty uh, wannabe Islam group called the Nation of Islam. That, uh, and their whole pitch basically was, uh, was sort of the opposite of white supremacy. It was, you know, all these people who had been legitimately, uh, you know, his first memory, Malcolm X's first memory is his house being burned down by white supremacists. So, like, you grow up, like, being pretty, like, hurt. And so, basically, the Nation of Islam was all about uh, this myth that white people were actually devils created by the devil. And so, it was okay to hate them and uh, injure them and murder them and all that. And it sort of started morphing into this religion. And uh, But the real mainstream Islam was like, get these guys away. So it was this very sort of toxic thing. And he, Malcolm X was this amazing speaker, amazing public speaker. And he was good at tapping into people who'd been sort of hurt by the systemic racism in America with this idea that like, hey, they're racist because they're not human. So it's okay to hate them. So it's a sort of funky thing uh, that is sort of the, there's a famous documentary about it, the hate that hate bred. Um, so it was kind of this like, you know, very you know, upsetting thing. And, you know, Dr. King disavowed this whole movement. He's like, we are about working together and nonviolence and not calling our brothers and sisters devils. And, uh, and so there was this sort of clash. What happened that the reason we know Malcolm X is this great guy is he went to Mecca for his uh, pilgrimage, his Islamic pilgrimage. And he was having sort of a fallout with the nation of Islam. He went to Mecca and he saw people from every country every skin color, every language, all kneeling down and praying the same way. Mm. And he had this epiphany where he was like, I am an outsider now. I am no longer, no one cares who I am, but they all love me and they respect me because we have this shared sort of desire to get close to God. And when he did that, he had this sort of epiphany. He was like, I just ate from the same bowl as white people and they weren't devils. And, uh, and they didn't think of me as a devil. And so then he went, he traveled through Africa and like, met with all of these, uh, tried to get back to his African heritage. And so he converted to Sunni Islam. 
it came back and like his first speech or something, he, he gets up at the pulpit and he's like, I think that we should work together with everyone regardless of their skin color. And all of his people from his, uh, you know, his congregation were like, what? And he's like, and I think that, uh, that women are equal to men. And they're like, the fuck? And, uh, and he was like, and I don't think we should use violence. And I think the civil, Dr. King is right. And so that's, and then he ended up getting killed by these angry people who he had sold out for this like new perspective. But the thing that happened to him is he got exposed to a different script than the one that he had grown up with. You know, his dad being murdered by the KKK, his house being burdened down by racists, uh, being thrown in jail because like a white girl like ratted him out and sold him out. He got thrown in jail for longer than he should have had. Like you can understand why he would be full of anger. And it wasn't until he had this sort of out of body, out of his own country experience that he revised that. And uh, and this amazing guy, his autobiography is amazing. So that sort of thing, like being able to put yourself in that situation. So physical travel is great for that. Uh, tra- being in a place where you're not yourself, but you can also do this through media. There's other stuff that I, I read about, about uh, big mindset shifts in America towards groups that have been minoritized. Um, like, uh, like, how did we get so on board with gay marriage in like a generation in America? A lot of it is because of the characters that were on television that we learned their stories. They were sympathetic. Mm-hmm. They came out on TV and were like, I love Ellen and she's a good person. So there's these moments that can sort of blow your mind. Uh, one of the interesting pieces of research that sort of has to do with that is people who watch more fictional television up to a certain point. There's a point where it doesn't matter. Watching more fictional television or watching the news from different channels, uh, not just sticking to MSNBC, rank higher on intellectual humility. Hmm. People who read more books in general rank higher on intellectual humility. People who read books from different genres rank even higher. There's like a very clear correlation. And maybe you're more inclined to read books of different genres if you're already open-minded. But the theory is that if you expose yourself to these other worlds for long enough, you can't help but become okay with the idea that other people prefer different things or are different or believe different and you get less scared of them. There, there's plenty of research that if you hang out with people who you're, uh, are different than you that you're scared of, for long enough, you won't be scared. Hmm. And that's obvious. But being exposed to the stories, seeing the human stories of, uh, of people who are not like you through media and hearing the viewpoints of people who don't agree with you through media long enough will make you more open to revising your viewpoint. And part of this that's crucial is it would be easy to say, well, oh, that's indoctrination. Like, you watch all of these gay characters on TV and then, like, you know, you're indoctrinated to think that being gay is okay. No, that's not what it is because human beings are good and and ought to be good, especially an intellectually intellectually humble human being is going to be good at filtering when they need to revise their viewpoint or not. So just because you have new information doesn't mean you're, if you're open-minded, like, oh, I, I learned this thing. If it, the fact is wrong, you're not going to agree with it. There's sort of a balance there. But if you're open to revising your viewpoint, it's not personal when you realize that you're wrong. You realize that, oh, gays are human too, and they deserve rights, and they should get married. That is not wrong. And so you're open to that. But if, you know, if someone told you something that was wrong, you're going to interpret that uh, and, and sort of filter out whether it's right or not. So this idea of exposing yourself to enough information that isn't uh, that you don't agree with, entertainment is a good vehicle for that. I think also entertainment is like a safe vehicle for it. Yes. So let's say you are scared of something. 
you know, this is the whole basis of like horror movies. So you can go to a horror movie and experience horror safely. Yes. Like you're not being chased by a monster, but your brain sort of like, what the heck? I'm being chased by a monster. Your brain thinks it's being chased by a yeah. monster, but it's it's safe. So you're able to safely kind of go into these environments that are really uncomfortable for you. And then I think combine that with broadening your scene of who you talk to and, yeah. and so on. Yeah, you can determine that monsters aren't real after the horror movie. Right. But if you, you know, you watch, you learn people's stories, documentaries too, you can determine, oh, hey, this is a human being and I should be open to who they are. Uh, like, you can do that as a human being. So, so the power of difference, working titles coming out in potentially February of 2018. Yep. Usually I don't have someone on so much in such a long distance before the book's coming out, but I knew the topic was was fascinating to me. Um, but it does sound like a good companion piece with your earlier book, Smart Cuts. So I encourage people to buy the book Smart Cuts in preparation for Thank you. The Power of Difference. And one thing is, you were telling the story of the, the night that it was raining and you were deciding between the park bench and the office. Where did you end up? <laughs> I think that night I went to the office... Interesting story. There was a, another guy who was going through a personal crisis who it turns out was also uh, between apartments. I think I was. Were you like embarrassed to see each other? <laughs> so we, we discovered that we had both stayed at the office and we actually became friends over that sort of shared experience. Um, someone that I hadn't really interacted with much. So, so that happened. So I stayed at the office and. Uh, so kind of uh, surrendering to the disaster yeah. as opposed to caving into it and just getting into problem-solving mode <laughs> as opposed to like despair mode yeah. could potentially lead to new connections. New and yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the next day and the days after that, how did you bounce back to essentially run your business? I mean, it took a while. And my business partners were very great. It, it actually took a couple months for me to disclose mm -hmm. to anyone what was happening, including my family. Because you, you felt shame? Yeah. Because I was shame I was felt shame. To, shame felt shame. I was supposed to be this great success, and I I was broken in shambles, uh, and uh, you know, personal life that was so idyllic like was now not. Um, so it took a little while to get into it, and I I definitely went through some anxiety and depression, and you know, drank some things I shouldn't have drank as much of as I did, uh, but. It was, I mean, honestly, it was the people, like, you learn how much people love you when you're in that kind of situation as soon as you do start opening up. I think that's right. I think you you realize people want to help. Like, particularly if you're the sort of person who was always the hero and always the success, people actually want an excuse to help you. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this, uh, one of the kind of key moments for me that was really touching there's a New York Times columnist named David Carr who passed away like a year and change ago. Amazing guy, brilliant guy. He was a former crack addict uh, who turned his life around and now is this great family man. Well, he passed away, but he's this great family man, super good guy. And he would call me once in a while. Uh, we went on a couple of business trips together and he'd call me once in a while and we'd hang out and he'd ask me my opinion on stories. And he called me up when I was going through this a, a few days after the rain night when I got really depressed. Um, he called me and he started asking me, he's like, what do you think about this new thing that's going on? Like, I'm thinking of writing about it. What do you think? And, uh, and then he stopped. And he was like, I know this tone, in, tone of voice. I recognize this. You're going through something. What is it? And so I kind of cracked and I told him, one of the first people that I like actually fully got into it besides my therapist. I think it was my therapist and then David Carr. And, uh, 
And then he told me about all of the, you know, he has had a really rough life, all these things that he'd been through and how it's going to suck. You'll get through it. People are going to tell you it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay for a while. Like feel those feelings and do that. Um, and it was so nice. And he ended up being late for his next interview because he spent an hour talking to me through this. And it was people like that. And I had uh, like an apprentice who was there for the summer to like learn stuff who is a, like a breathing coach and yoga instructor. And finally I opened up to her and she like had me do breathing exercises. And it's like this sort of community of people who cared, like came out wanting to help. And uh, I think that's how we get through things. I mean, it's sort of the meta so, idea of what we're talking about, Yeah, right? it's sort of the same. I think you get through these emotional breakthroughs the same way people get through these kind of societal breakthroughs. Like why do we have to be so strong and perfect and immortal that we can't accept that disparate help from different places to help us on our journey. That's not how humans are built. Yeah, and I think that's the main fear people have day to day. Like that's why they're that's why even though it's so obvious that vulnerabilities help you know, sharing vulnerabilities help uh create intimacy and solve problems, people just don't want to do it. Or yeah. we we bottle up. It's tough. You know, there's someone in my let's keep going on this story, someone in my office who I was frankly fairly intimidated by. Um who I never knew how to interact with her. And uh, she's also like, I'm a short guy and she's really tall and she's sort of like aggressive salesperson. And I was like, I don't know that I like this person. And uh, we ended up at a bar when I was starting to like kind of do better about this. And we were talking about what I've been going through. And then she related her story. This is the power of stories. She related her story about how, you know, broken family and she lived in the attic of a church at the generosity of the pastor. She walked 120 blocks a day to go to her internship, you know, like a year before we had hired her. And after that, I was like, I am on her team. Like, and I realized that I had been sort of falsely judging her based on superficial things that she was tall and, you know, kind of aggressive. And uh, she became amazing. I became her biggest fan and supporter. And we collaborated a lot better. And so it's it's like you're saying the vulnerability, the mutual disclosure, but it's learning someone's story. It's like, hey, every person out there is a human being that has a story that makes them lovable and can break down that kind of faux barrier. Like unless the person is like legitimately angry and doesn't want that. Like right. if someone is open to that relationship, it's there if you can dig down to to each other's story. So yeah, so many things came out of that. And I mean, I'm no one's ever healed after trauma, but I feel so much better for having gone through those kinds of things. And I think it's specifically because of the other people and the relationships that you build from it. Well, Shane Snow, author of Smart Cuts, uh, head of the company Contently, and the, the future book, working title, The Power of Difference. Thanks once again for uh, coming on the show. Well, thank you. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey there, thanks for listening. I really want to know if you like the show and there's an easy way for you to tell me. If you subscribe, you'll never miss a single show and it's really easy to do this and it helps me a lot. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show and click subscribe. Thank you. I really mean it. Thanks.